folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 3. The theme I'll be addressing today is the Confucian notion of moral charisma. This may sound like a strange idea, so it'll probably need some explanation. The basic notion is this. The behavior of a leader, or the person at the top of a hierarchy, will have an effect on the people lower down the hierarchy. That's it. We can think of it as a moral trickle-down, if you like. The difference from trickle-down economics being that this one actually works. How this functions in Confucian political thought is that if the ruler, if the person at the top of whatever hierarchy you're talking about can be persuaded to behave virtuously, that person's virtuous behavior will be infectious. It will be imitated. It will inspire trust and it will inspire stronger social relationships. Similarly, if a leader is vicious, then that viciousness too will have effects further down the hierarchy. It will inspire vicious behavior in subordinates, in other members of the community. And in Confucian thought, the cultivation of virtue in the person at the top or the people at the top is more important than practical concerns. In fact, it is prior to pragmatic concerns. This may seem a little different from how modern North Americans do things, where our priority usually comes down to the economy. And other activities, other commitments, usually have to be justified in terms of the economy. So the economy, uh, economic concerns, these are, these are the dominant discourse in, in most modern politics, I think. But as I said, in Confucian politics, or in Confucian political theory, the dominant discourse, ideally, is virtue and the cultivation of virtue. Last episode, I spent a fair bit of time talking about Mencius, my favorite Confucian thinker. The book that records Mencius's thought actually begins with a discussion of the importance of cultivating virtue in the leader or in the ruler or in the sovereign or whichever word you want to use. There are also several passages in Confucius's Analects that address this idea. So what I want to do first is take a look at these Confucian passages just to root our discussion right in the texts and then do a comparison of a couple of modern political leaders. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand and Donald Trump, of course, of the U.S., and see whether and how this notion of moral charisma is applicable to modern politics and to current events. So, to start with Mencius, this is passage 1A1, so the very beginning of the text. And in this passage, Mencius is having a conversation with King Hui of Liang. Now, the king's main concern is finding a way to do what's best for his kingdom. And the conversation goes like this. Mencius had an audience with King Hui of Liang. The king said, Venerable sir, you have not regarded hundreds of leagues too far to come, so you must have some way of profiting my state. Mencius replied, Why must your majesty speak of profit? Let there simply be benevolence and righteousness. If your majesty says, How can I profit my state? The chief counselors will say, How can I profit my clan? And the nobles and commoners will say, how can I profit myself? Superiors and subordinates will seize profit from each other, and the state will be endangered. When the ruler of a state that can field 10,000 chariots is assassinated, it will invariably be by a clan that can field 1,000 chariots. 
When the ruler of a state that can field a thousand chariots is assassinated, it will invariably be by a clan that can field a hundred chariots. To have a thousand out of ten thousand, or a hundred out of a thousand, is plenty. But when people put profit before righteousness, they cannot be satisfied without grasping for more. Never have the benevolent left their parents behind. Never have the righteous put their ruler last. Let your majesty speak only of benevolence and righteousness. Why must one speak of profit? Broadly speaking, profit can be understood as one's own self-interest, whereas benevolence and righteousness, or humanity and righteousness, or any of the other virtues with which Confucianism concerns itself, revolve around taking into account the interests of others and serving those with integrity and sincerity. What this passage does is it establishes right from the outset of the book the tension between opposing character types. The ideal, or one of the ideals of Confucian moral self-cultivation is the gentleman, which as I explained in the last episode, is not an aristocratic designation, but since Confucius's time had been an ethical designation. So the gentleman is an ethically cultivated person. At the other end of the spectrum is the small man or the petty man or the small person or petty person. And the concern of the petty person is profit, is self-interest. And the ideal from a Confucian point of view is not to have petty people in high office. There are always going to be petty people around. Most people actually do fit that description. But these, according to Confucianism, aren't the people you want running things. Now, the argument that Mencius makes is that if the ruler is self-interested, if the ruler is concerned with profit, then that self-interest will influence his subordinates who will themselves be concerned with profit and who will themselves influence their own subordinates to be concerned with profit. So you end up with a system of everybody out for themselves. Something that Mencius draws attention to is that if people are concerned primarily with profit, they're never satisfied. They're always grasping. They're always wanting more. And that this, this constant grasping is a source of jealousy and unhealthy competition, and often even of outright betrayal. Whereas if people were concerned with benevolence and righteousness, then their ethical focus is not going to be on themselves, but on others, and not on benefit, but on service. And it's exactly that focus on service that Confucianism wants to instill in people in high office. But of course, this is just a single passage. Let's take a look now at a couple of short pieces from the Analects. Here are a few passages from Book 4. These are chapters 12, 14, and 16. So this is Book 4, Chapter 12. The Master said, If one acts with a view to profit, there will be much resentment. Chapter 14 goes like this. The Master said, One is not worried about not holding position. One is worried about how one may fit oneself for appointment. One is not worried that nobody knows one. One seeks to become fit to be known. Then we'll skip down to 16. The master said, The gentleman is familiar with what is right, just as the small man is familiar with profit. These are all lovely little passages, and certainly they make clear the very consistent thread that runs through Confucian thought, pretty much all Confucian thought, with which I'm familiar at least. And that is the importance of conscientious service, the importance of putting community interests ahead of one's own interests. 
the key difference, basically, between the small person or petty person and the gentleman is, on the one hand, the petty person is asking, what can I get? And the gentleman is asking, what can I give? Or what can I do? I'd like to push this a little further. These are passages about which I've thought quite a lot over the years. And I think, and this is just my take on things, that a life spent pursuing profit, which is the ideal of so many institutions in our society, hell, you can do degrees on that. That's what an MBA is. That's what a business degree is. And so many other degrees as well. But to pursue a life of profit is effectively to turn or to see the world as nothing more than a means to an end. The world is something to get stuff from. On the other hand, the gentleman, the, the person of ethical cultivation, is concerned with making a contribution. That is, the life of narrow self-interest is a life of subordinating everything outside oneself to oneself. Whereas the life of Confucian virtue, as described in the various classics and later texts, is a life devoted to the benefit of the community. And I don't mean material benefit, I mean primarily the ethical benefit. That is, cultivating a society that allows people to cultivate their own virtues. And as we talked about last episode, there is a material consideration here. And Confucianism is not blind to the importance of material considerations. It's just that these are not ends in themselves. They're means to an end. And the, the end is always not a rich community in the material sense, but a thriving community in the ethical sense, a cohesive community, a community in which citizens act with humanity toward each other. Chapter 14 sums this up really well. So I'll just read that one again. The master said, one is not worried about not holding a position. One is worried about how one may fit oneself for appointment. One is not worried that nobody knows one. One seeks to become fit to be known. But so far, what I've been focusing on is the difference between self-interest on the one hand and service to the community on the other. I haven't really gotten into the charisma part of things, except with Mencius's assertion that there is a sort of a trickle-down, as I said. If the, if, if the person at the top is concerned with narrow self-interest, then people below will also be concerned with narrow self-interest. They will do what they see done. So to add to the little list of passages that I'd like to have in mind today, let's take a look at Book 2, Chapter 1. The Master said, The practice of government by means of virtue may be compared with the pole star, which the multitudinous stars pay homage to while it stays in its place. That's a wonderful passage with quite a lot packed into it, so I think we should pause on it. The image of the pole star is lovely. It positions the king as that still point, the single still point around which everything else revolves and to which everyone looks. It invokes an image of leadership that is not mere management, but rather positions the leader as an exemplar, as the person from whom all others take their cues. That is, if the leader is good and competent, of course, then things will be managed in such a way that the entire system works. And if the leader is vicious and incompetent, but particularly vicious, then the system won't work. 
The pole star is also that relative to which one knows where one is. That is, the leader sets an example. Good or bad, the leader does set an example. So we'll take a look at Book 2, Chapter 3. The Master said, If you lead them by means of government and keep order among them by means of punishments, the people are without conscience in evading them. If you lead them by means of virtue and keep order among them by means of ritual, they have a conscience and, moreover, will submit. Okay, this passage works with the Polestar passage really well, doesn't it? It recognizes that the state revolves around whoever occupies the top point on the hierarchy, and all states have hierarchies, all societies have hierarchies. This is just a fact. But it also recognizes that we are imitative creatures. This is something we share with our closest relatives, the chimpanzees. Much of our behavior is very similar to chimpanzee behavior in terms of how we imitate people further up the hierarchy from us. And Confucius is arguing here that if the ruler or the sovereign or, again, whatever term you want to use, relies on laws, statutes, and punishments to direct things, then that appeal to self-interest will cultivate further appeals to self-interest among the people. Whereas if the ruler conducts himself with virtue and, and, and ritual, then he will bring out that behavior in the people as well. And moreover, it's not that hard to observe and figure out where the leader, where the ruler actually stands. As Book 2, Chapter 10 says, The Master said, See how he operates. Observe the path he follows. Examine what he is satisfied with. And how can a man remain inscrutable? How can a man remain inscrutable? I'll certainly be referring to this passage later on. But the notion here is, if you watch what a person does, you have a pretty good idea about who they are. We reveal ourselves in action, that's all. We reveal ourselves with the company we keep. We reveal ourselves in the kinds of things that make us happy. We reveal ourselves in our actions and in our approvals. And these say more about us than our words. And as long as we're speaking about actions or conduct... Let's take a quick look at one more passage. This is Book 13, Chapter 26. The Master said, The gentleman is dignified, but not arrogant. The small man is arrogant, but not dignified. On that note, let's compare leaders. I'd like to begin with Prime Minister Ardern, and I'll be discussing her in relation to two major episodes. The first is the mass shooting in March of 2019 at the mosque in Christchurch that killed 50 people. The second is the coronavirus crisis in which her country is doing remarkably well. So first, the shooting. On March 15th, 2019, a white supremacist terrorist named Brenton Tarrant, using multiple firearms opened fire on a crowd of people praying at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. 51 people died. The local Muslim community was devastated, of course, as were the bulk of New Zealanders and a great many other people around the world. In her role as a leader, Prime Minister Ardern responded quickly and with the deepest possible compassion. She also responded effectively, speaking of the people who were killed and the people who were affected, 
She said, they are us. The person who has perpetuated this violence against us is not. She identified herself with the affected community. She wore a headscarf as she spoke. She wept openly. Her words were not mere empty words. They were sincerely meant. She was affected not because it was her job to be affected, but because she's a human being. And she was affected as a human being. And she put that effect into effect very quickly after the shooting happened. New Zealand cracked down on the types of weapon it would allow civilians to hold, and did so, as far as I'm concerned, quite correctly. It put a ban, a national ban, on military-grade assault weapons, high-capacity magazines, and any modifications to existing weapons that could bring them up to the level of of military-grade. She, or rather her government, offered to cover the funeral costs for the affected families. And as pointed out in the line that I just read, she identified the affected community as part of us, part of the community of her country, of the country that she had been elected to lead. That is, insofar as there is an us-them binary in her thinking on this matter, the them, the outside, is not racial, it's not religious, it's simply those who intend harm. Her reaction is consistent with her words to the UN in September of 2018, that the most important thing that a leader can do and the most important thing that a leader can bring to the role of leadership is empathy. Prime Minister Ardern, in showing her empathy, demonstrated genuine human and ethical strength. She demonstrated the Confucian virtue of humanity. And she demonstrated it as well as I've ever seen any leader do. Not merely as a perfunctory performance of a job, but as a reflection of who she actually is. And as an indication that she has made the good of all of the people of her country her own good. And in the deep humanity of her response, she pulled her country together. She helped in a collective healing that was very, very necessary at the time. She let them know not just that she, as one of them, was traumatized by the events, but that she, as their representative, would do everything she could to make sure it wouldn't happen again. And in grieving publicly, she made it okay to grieve. In weeping publicly, she made it okay to weep. She didn't resort to empty, chest-pounding threats, the caricature that many of us have gotten so used to. But she actually responded as a full human being. And she let the people of New Zealand know that to respond to terror, to respond to horror, to respond to trauma as a full human being is good, is often necessary, and is a worthy response to trauma, to pain, to horror. We're allowed to be horrified. We're allowed to admit that we're horrified. And Prime Minister Ardern did that, and yet still acted, and still united her country to act for their collective good, and for both the protection and the healing of those most directly affected. And as you can tell, my admiration for her character is virtually boundless. And this role of 
of uniting her country at a time of need is exactly the kind of moral charisma that the Confucian leader ideally exemplifies. But of course, Jacinda Ardern is not the only world leader who figures into the story. Investigators found after the shooting that Tarrant had posted a 74-page manifesto online. In this manifesto, he expresses his admiration for one Donald Trump as a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. So, moral charisma can lift us up and help us to be our best, or it can give us permission to be our worst. But that was 2019. This is 2020. And for New Zealand, as well as much of the rest of the world, one of the big stories for 2020 is, of course, coronavirus and the COVID-19 lockdowns. And while Prime Minister Ardern's government arguably didn't respond as quickly as they could have at first, I've read that criticism at least, when they responded, they responded with great commitment, with great thoroughness, and with profound compassion. And again, Ms. Ardern has been the personification, has been the voice of that compassion, has been the focal point of leadership, which is exactly what her function as prime minister is to be. And as with the, uh, the mosque shooting in Christchurch, one of the most important roles she can play here is the role of unifier, the leader by example, because leaders do provide examples, whether they want to or whether they don't, and for good or for bad. Jacinda Ardern refers to her team of 5 million. This is the population of New Zealand, of course. Again, not placing her above or outside, but within the community that she's directing. Her interests are identified with their interests. At the practical level, her government has put a ban on price gouging, has prohibited the increase of rent, and prohibited evictions for the duration of the crisis, making sure that people will not be made destitute or homeless as her country comes to grip with this pandemic. She encourages community spirit whenever she addresses her people, and she addresses them regularly and with deep compassion. I keep using that word. It is the word that describes her leadership style more than any that I can possibly think of. She encourages people to check on their neighbors, never to forget that they're in community, even if they have to be apart from each other or had to be apart from each other. Because as I record this, New Zealand is opening up again. They have no current infections and haven't had for some weeks. But to go back to the earlier days when people were uncertain and scared about their livelihoods and their loved ones, she began making regular addresses, some of these from her own home. And these were not highly produced propagandistic affairs. It was simply a person speaking to people. If you want a good example, take a look at her live Facebook feed from March 25th. She's just finished she's just finished putting her child to bed and addresses the nation on her live feed, answers their questions that come in on her feed in real time, addresses people by their first names. Again, not making a distinction between her office and her humanity because they seem to be the same. She does not assert power over her citizens. She speaks to them as one of them and helps them come together 
at a time when they must physically be apart or at a time when they had to physically be apart. Because, of course, New Zealand did an excellent job handling this, and now they are able to actually open their country back up again, when countries who have done less well, including the one in which I live, have not yet reached that point. If I can pick one comparator, one thing that that Ardern's addresses to her people remind me of, it's FDR's fireside chats from the depths of the Depression, when he did his best to bring together a country that was at the time also afraid and divided and in many cases angry and desperate and needed a leader. Jacinda Ardern is doing that. She is that kind of leader. And I don't think the comparison is an exaggeration. But as long as we're talking in the context of Confucian political thought, and given the attention I paid earlier in this episode to the contrast between virtue and profit, the contrast between humanity and righteousness on the one hand and profit on the other, between the ethically cultivated person and the petty person, it's also worth pointing out that Ardern put the well-being of her people above their economic concerns. Because, of course, the economy is not a thing. It's a system of relationships, and it can only have meaning in a human context. It is only one facet of how human beings relate to each other. No, no single person can ever be reduced to merely an economic actor. To do so, to attempt to do so, would be an affront to human dignity. And Ms. Ardern has done her best to safeguard not only the well-being, but the dignity of the people of New Zealand. To make sure that those who need financial help get it, to make sure, as I said before, that nobody is evicted, that nobody is taken unfair advantage of. That is, she is behaving as a person whose first concern is humanity in the Confucian sense, rather than a person whose first concern is profit. And that is such an important difference. So if we come back to that last passage that I read you before we started our comparison of leadership styles, book two, chapter 10, The master said, see how he operates. Observe what path he follows. Examine what he is satisfied with. And how can a man remain inscrutable? How can a man remain inscrutable? Well, setting aside the gendered language, how can a person remain inscrutable? Well, what do we need to know about Jacinda Ardern that we don't know from observing her conduct, from observing the way that her words and her actions line up? the utter lack of hypocrisy, at least that I've been able to detect. What she seems to be comfortable with, what she seems to be satisfied with, is a people whose well-being she recognizes as not merely an economic consideration, but a fully human consideration. I wish more world leaders could see their people or any people that way. And on that note, on into the darkness. So, what do I say about Trump? Or what do I say that I can repeat on a public forum? Because this podcast is largely concerned with social or political or current events, his name will be coming up a lot. In this context, I'll try to confine my comments to things that are relevant to the question we're actually looking at, the question of moral charisma, and the comparison of Trump's performance with that of Prime Minister Ardern. So, to keep things reasonably comparable, 
Today I'll be referring to Trump's responses to mass shootings in the United States, of which there are many, and I will not be laying that at his feet. The problem existed before him, the problem will exist after him, so I'm not going to be one of these people who simply blames everything that's wrong with the United States on Trump. He may deserve a lot of blame, but he doesn't deserve the blame for everything. But as I say, I will be commenting on his responses to things that have happened while he's in office. I'll also be referring to his response to the coronavirus, as this is a point of direct comparison between Trump and Prime Minister Ardern. And of course, I would be irresponsible not to discuss his performance and character in response to the ongoing wave of Black Lives Matter demonstrations, which have my complete and unqualified support, and have also had my participation. So, to start, let's just broadly consider Trump's responses to the numerous, numerous mass shootings that have happened since he came into office. One of his most common comments is to attribute the event to mental illness. Now, many of these events have been racially motivated against the Muslim community, against the Jewish community, against the Mexican community, against the black community. But Trump's most consistent note when he is talking publicly is to blame these on mental illness. By doing so, he, he, he accomplishes two things. One, he sidesteps the question of domestic terrorism, which many of these quite legitimately are, and which, which Jacinda Ardern recognizes. And he also effectively criminalizes mental illness. So he distorts the discourse. And he is not the only one. This happens very often in the right-wing media. Because, of course, the domestic terrorists who do the shooting are virtually, to a man and its men, aligned with the political right, with the far political right. And I need to emphasize far political right because I don't want to vilify everybody whose views are a little further right than my own, which are pretty radically left in most cases. Okay, well, maybe not radically left, but pretty damn far to the left in any case. Another note that Trump tends to hit, and this is a good note, he did it after the Parkland shootings, he did it after the Dayton shootings, and granted, he got Dayton confused with Toledo, which in itself may bespeak some lack of sincerity on his part, and he was justly criticized for it. But he gives lip service to the idea that there should be better gun control. Specifically, he specifies that there should be better gun control relative to mentally unstable people getting their hands on weapons. And fine, this makes sense. Crazy people shouldn't have guns. I don't think nearly as many people should have guns as actually do. The point is, where Trump is concerned, he has at least some of the right words, but he's done sweet fuck all with them. He occasionally can talk a good game, but even when he mouths the correct or semi-correct platitudes, these are not followed up by action. These are not backed up by policy. When Jacinda Ardern said what she needed to do, she fucking well did it. That is what a person of integrity does. And a person of integrity is exactly what Donald Trump is not. So fine, he's a complete failure, both practically and morally, in the ways in which he has addressed gun violence in the United States. Well, 
all that really means is that he is a member of the Republican Party, which has consistently opposed meaningful gun law reform for far, far, far longer than Trump has been in office. And honestly, that's about all I want to say about Trump and the mass shooting question, because it's not specific to him. It's endemic to American society, and the lines dividing those who are proposing an actual solution to the problem and those who are accepting or endorsing the status quo falls almost precisely along party lines. This is not merely a Trump issue. So what can we say about Donald Trump specifically in the context of moral charisma and the comparison with Prime Minister Ardern? Well, let's start with her favorite word, empathy. And I might simply ask, how much empathy have you seen from Donald Trump or from his administration? But what word can we most associate with his administration or even before his administration, his campaign for the presidency? Well, if you look at the spike documented by the FBI in hate crimes in the U.S. since 2016, then I would say that word is hate. A report issued by the FBI in late 2018 reports that hate crimes showed increases consecutively in 2016, 2017, and 2018. So effectively from when Trump's campaign rolled into high gear to the publication of the report. Similarly, in 2018, a peer-reviewed paper published by Griffin and Russian in January of 2018 in the Social Science Research Network observes that, and I quote, counties that voted for President Trump by the widest margins in the presidential election experienced the largest increases in reported hate crimes. That is, Trump appeals appealed appeals to the worst in the American character, and I would say the worst in the human character. It's been noted over and over and over again that he relies not on the politics of unity, but on the politics of division. He relies on pitting constituencies against each other. And remember always that division is weakness. If your leader divides you, he is making you weak. In any case, getting back to the topic of hate crimes... And this is reflected in the Christchurch mosque shooting. The example of Donald Trump attaining what was, in 2016, arguably the most prestigious office in the world, it no longer is, gives license to people inflamed by the degree of hatred that he quite clearly embodies to express that hatred in action. This also is a function of moral charisma. And... If you want specific examples of the effect that his palpable racism and hatred has had on his country, consider what happened shortly after the election in a 2016 performance of Fiddler on the Roof in New York, where an audience member in the midst of the performance called out, Heil Hitler, Heil Trump. And consider the words of Richard Spencer, again, shortly after Trump's electoral college victory. And Spencer is a prominent neo-Nazi, just to be clear. 
Hail Trump. Hail our people. Hail victory. And since then, as I said, hate crimes against ethnic minorities, against particular religions, against the LGBTQ community have all increased. Trump has sought to exclude as many people as he possibly can from as many protections as he can possibly undermine. That is where Prime Minister Ardern takes the most inclusive possible stance as she can regarding who belongs to her community. Trump seeks to exclude as many people as he can fucking get away with. And if I can get a little personal here for a second, as if I weren't doing that already, the first law that I recall Trump enacting told me virtually everything I needed to know about what his presidency would be like. And the only way in which I was wrong was my failure to grasp exactly how bad it would be. And the law was this. He made it legal for, quote, hunters, unquote, to shoot hibernating bears in their lairs. This is the kind of person who has his finger on the button and, as far as I'm concerned, really fucking wants to push it. He has undermined virtually every piece of environmental legislation that he can get his hands on, which from a Confucian sense is positively wrong because he's creating situations in which his people are more likely to become sick. And why? Why? So a handful of people can make more money that they don't need? I admit that when I come up against his mentality, I... I sometimes find myself baffled. And I guess that's because I'm not a sociopath. I mean, seriously. Anyone who can refer to the tiki torch-wielding moral bottom feeders at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, as very fine people is not worthy of respect. But I guess it's time to move onward. We have other crises to discuss. How has Trump handled COVID-19? Well, that's fun. He's described it as a hoax. He has said it will go away by some miracle. He has systematically muzzled the most competent scientific voices associated with his administration because they don't say what he wants them to say. During a time when responsible medical opinion was that people ought to be social distancing and wearing masks, and this still is, by the way, responsible medical opinion, he appeared on stage continuously with maskless sycophants who were there for no other purpose than to be stage props to his own ego. He turned his so-called press briefings into propaganda fests, he attacked and continues to attack journalists for asking responsible questions. He propagates misinformation, giving serious consideration to, oh, I don't know, bleach. For quite some time, he was referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus. Again, another example of his divisive policies, pitting one group against another group, trying to single out an enemy. A typical fascist tactic, by the way as he continues to undermine the integrity of the judiciary and as the Senate simply throws away its own integrity. And his government, rather than distributing PPE in a responsible fashion, has more than once seized shipments bound to jurisdictions in need. 
He's like a little boy in a sandbox whose only words are mine, mine, mine. I mean Jesus fucking Christ. When the state of Maryland had a shipment of PPE called in, their governor, a Republican, had the Maryland National Guard protect the shipment against federal seizure. So to be clear, I'm not attacking all Republicans. Some of the Republican governors are doing a good job on this. They're being responsible citizens. Donald Trump and his administration are not. Many of the red governors are not, but some of them are. Some of them are doing their best. That deserves respect and recognition. But as far as Trump is concerned, well, let's see. Let's maybe talk about some numbers. As I said, New Zealand, a country of 5 million, is now virus-free. And when I say virus-free, I mean... Prior to actually making that announcement, they conducted 40,000 tests among the general population and found not a single positive result. That's a statistically significant sample of the population. And to all appearances, they are clean. But okay, how many people in New Zealand have died? The answer is 22. As of this recording, about 114,000 people have died in the United States plus or minus, probably plus. But the United States is a much bigger country than New Zealand. They're a country of roughly 370 million people. So fine. Let's make the numbers match up. If you adjust the 22 deaths from a population of about 5 million in New Zealand to a population of about 370 million in the US, you end up with 1,628. Now, if you take the roughly 114,000 deaths in the U.S. and divide them by that 1,628, you end up with 86. What that means is that the per capita death rate in the U.S. is 86 times what the per capita death rate in New Zealand was. Now, let's be honest. If New Zealand had a population comparable to the U.S., they would have a higher proportional casualty rate. The denser your population, the harder a disease is to control. This is Epidemiology 101. The difference is the leadership style, though. Even if New Zealand would have had a higher casualty rate, they would have had nowhere near the casualty rate that the U.S. has for the simple reason that their leader took the crisis seriously and embodied the values that she hoped her citizens would embody. And they did. And because of these policies, to put it in competitive terms, they won. Trump does not lead by example. Even when his medical, even when his medical experts are saying wearing a mask is a good idea, he refuses to wear one. I mean, shit. The other day he visited a Puritan factory in the vicinity of Bangor, Maine. The factory makes nasal swabs for coronavirus testing. Trump didn't wear a mask to the fucking factory. So the management decided because the risk of contamination was sufficiently high that they would have to scrap the entire day's production. Why doesn't he wear a mask? Well, probably because he wears so much orange makeup and it would be embarrassing for him to have that orange makeup wearing off on a piece of fabric over his face. But that's just speculation. It does, however, I think, wrap up the portion of today's episode that I want to spend on Trump's response to coronavirus. Or at least it almost does. Because I am comparing him to Jacinda Ardern, 
and her response, her very caring response in looking out for the well-being of her people, in placing their well-being, in placing their, their human dignity above their economic function. And here, Ardern and Trump are at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. The government of New Zealand, as has the government of Canada, as has the government of Australia, as has the government of Britain, as have the governments of a number of other countries, has offered arguably sufficient financial assistance to people put out of work, either permanently or temporarily, by the pandemic, to make sure that they are not falling into destitution. Of all of the so-called developed countries in the world, no country has offered less than the U.S. to their working population. Now, this is no surprise. It's a Republican administration, a party not known for its concern for the well-being of actual human beings, as opposed to economic numbers, a party opposed to medical care, a party opposed to public education in many regards, a party opposed to the idea that the government is in any way responsible for the public good. That is, and this is just my take on the matter, a party opposed to the very notion of community. So under the Republicans, American workers are quite frankly being screwed. They've been put in a position, and here's where I have some sympathy with the demonstrations to end the lockdowns, which is the way I was going to phase into my discussion of Black Lives Matter. American workers, because they're not being given sufficient support in the richest fucking country in the world during a hundred-year pandemic to keep a fucking roof over their heads are in a position of either going homeless or going to disease-ridden workplaces where even if they themselves are not endangered, their senior and immune-compromised family members and community members will be. That policy is, I am convinced, deliberate because opening the economy is demonstrably more important to the Republican Party than the well-being of the people whom it's their goddamn job to represent. And yet they've spun things in such a way as to suppose that the lockdowns are the problem and not their cynical manipulation of people's livelihoods and well-beings. So when, when, when angry people assemble in state capitals demanding that the state be opened up, some of their demands are frivolous. I don't care if you want a hamburger. I don't care if you want a haircut. But I do care that you want to work. And I do care that you are afraid that your family is going to be made destitute because your government cares more about the people who have bought and paid for your representatives than it does for the people it is supposed to represent. On that note, I think I need to face into Black Lives Matter and Donald Trump's reaction, his ongoing reaction to that. Of course, if you want uh, a summary or background of what's going on in the Black Lives Matter movement, these are available online all over the place. I did address the matter in my last, my last episode, but I'm not an authority. Investigate this for yourselves. What I'm concerned with here is simply how Trump is responding, rather reacting to the situation. To sum up his response, if you can call it that, 
he had the following thing to say to state governors regarding their treatment of the demonstrators who, and again, as I said last episode, have far and away been, for the most part, peaceful, as opposed to the profoundly violent response that the police have shown. Trump has this to say to the governors. You have to dominate or you'll look like a bunch of jerks. And his notion of domination is really, really important here. This is the leader of a country, the elected leader of a country, speaking about how to treat his citizens. And the word that comes to his mind is dominate. He is concerned not with representation, but with domination. Compare this to Jacinda Ardern's response to the shooting at the Christchurch mosque, to the individuals contacting her on her live feed, scared, confused, simply looking for guidance, which she provided, honestly, humbly, and from the heart. To dominate, you can't be a part of a thing. You have to be separate from it and above it. This indicates how Trump sees government. It is not representation. It is domination. These two things are mutually exclusive. They can never fit together. If your notion of how to treat your citizens is that you need to dominate them, you are not fit to represent them. But it's worse. Trump, of course, as is all over the news these days, so I don't need to go into it. He wants the military called in. He's called in people from the Department of Justice. He's he's had faceless paramilitary units, figures, without identification, without insignia, patrolling the Capitol, standing guard around the Lincoln Monument, with no accountability because no formal identity. But this question of domination is not how he refers to all of his citizens. This is how he refers to his citizens who are not white. Because, of course, and this is the other side of the discourse, those demonstrators, those anti-lockdown demonstrators, with whom I actually, as I said, do have some sympathy because Trump's administration has placed them in a morally impossible position, and many of them are simply not educated enough to see through his bullshit. But when these white protesters, these armed white protesters came to, for example, the legislature in Michigan with fucking guns, Trump's words, Trump's words to the Michigan government were, make a deal. So, armed demonstrators, armed white demonstrators, are to be made a deal with, and unarmed demonstrators, who historically, for generations, have been the object of what I can only call police terror, are to be dominated. This is Donald Trump's vision for the United States and his vision for humanity. And this brings us around once again to that passage from Confucius. Book 2, Chapter 10. The Master said, See how he operates. Observe what path he follows. Examine what he is satisfied with. 
And how can a man remain inscrutable? How can a man remain inscrutable? Well, what path does Trump follow? What is he satisfied with? He is a shameless racist, a pathological liar, probably a sociopath, utterly corrupt, who shamelessly uses what used to be the most dignified office in the world for his personal profit, whose approach to government is one of division, one of perpetuating, not only perpetuating, but reinforcing long-standing rifts so that those with privilege keep their privilege and those who are excluded from power continue to be excluded from power. And not only that, but those who have recently been more included than they historically had been become excluded again. That is what he is satisfied with. That is the path he follows. That is Donald Trump's moral charisma. That is what he brings out in his nation. That is why hate crimes in the U.S. are at an all-time high for the modern period. He is, in that strictly Confucian sense, a petty man, concerned only with profit, and profit only for a few, as opposed to being concerned with humanity, as Jacinda Ardern quite clearly is. And in his tenure, as he squats in the White House, surrounded now by a fence to protect him from his own people because he goddamn well ought to be afraid of them. He is allowing his country to fall apart. He has politicized the greatest public health crisis of the last century, seeing it in terms of both politics and economics prior to any consideration of public health. His response to his own people being oppressed by a systemically racist police force or a systemically racist constellation of police forces is simply to reinforce the barricades. In a Confucian sense, he is an utter failure. He is dishonest. He is hypocritical. His words and his deeds do not add up. His concern is exclusively with profit and exclusively for a few with no regard for the dignity of the human beings, of the 370 million human beings for whom he is responsible. I'm trying to think of a graceful way to sign off here, and for the life of me, I can't. There is no ethical system in the world with which I am familiar, by which I can judge Donald Trump favorably. So when I condemn him from a Confucian point of view, that's only... Because today I'm talking as a Confucian. Regarding Jacinda Ardern, there is no ethical system with which I'm familiar by which she is not entitled to my respect. So, okay, I've found a positive way to sign off. I don't know what I'll be talking about next episode, but whatever it is, I hope you like it. In the meantime, thank you, be well, and, and be kind to each other.